This was an extraordinarily successful and historic nine-day trip the president took. Oh, was it? If you say so, Sean, it must be true. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, in Palinville, New York on WLPP 102.9 FM, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around. Swell Fellows says me from bradblog.com here with another thrilling broadcast, your secret back-channel communication of love. Welcome to it. Glad to have you here. Uh, boy, it's, uh, you know, it, whenever we take a weekend off, uh, so much happens with this administration. So much happens over a weekend, much less a long weekend. We had a long holiday weekend. So I have even more to catch up with. And Desi Doyen, I'm, I'm, I'll am i tell you in advance, I'm going to fail. <laughs> okay. I've got more show than I can possibly fit in. And we've got Mark Joseph Stern standing by uh, to join us momentarily on a bunch of court cases that we couldn't get to properly last week. So we're just playing catch up always well, constantly that's our, these you know, days. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like. this this blitzkrieg, this uh, blitzkrieg of news developments every single day. It makes it, as we said during the campaign, makes it impossible for anybody to focus really for very long and find out what's actually going on on any given one thing of the. Which the is why I want to. Which is out. why I want to make sure we have plenty of time for Mark Joseph Stern to yes. explain these uh, several court rulings at the Supreme Court and the appellate courts uh, from last week that I think are really important going forward. So I'm going to get to that very momentarily. Let me fly through. Oh, let me fly through uh, Donald Trump's nine day overseas trip in about the next (laughs) seven minutes here. Uh, First off, before I can even get to that, uh, the White House communications director, Mike Dubke, is leaving the administration. Uh, This amid swirling speculation about uh, possible Trump Trump staff shakeups. Uh, There may be a lot of people leaving this White House shortly. Dubke told CNN on Tuesday that he had submitted his resignation uh, mid-month on May 18th, but he said he would stay until the foreign trip was over. He said he had a good conversation with the president after submitting his resignation. He declined to discuss the turmoil inside the West Wing, only saying that he was resigning for a number of reasons, for personal reasons, he said. 
Dubkey had been in the process of divesting, however, from uh, from two companies, Crossroads and BlackRock Group, which are two communications firms that he worked at before joining the administration. And he was getting near the point where he would uh, was going to have to complete the divestiture, according to a friend. And such a move would have meant a significant financial sacrifice to keep his West Wing job at a time when rumors were swirling that he was about to be fired anyway. So it looked like he was going to be fired. So rather than, you know, have to roll back this divestiture again, uh, I guess he said, I'm getting out of here. The friend said, it's one thing if you're working at a place where your skills are appreciated. But he added, it's just not working. (laughs) <laughs> I'll say. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting that they're blaming the communications uh, department. And uh, Sean Spicer in the past few weeks has been rumored to be out soon as well. They're blaming, you know, the press guy, the communications guy, essentially for what it is that the Trump administration is doing itself. So good luck with that. In the meantime, Donald Trump is back from his overseas trip, and Sean Spicer says it was a fantastic success in every possible measure. It truly was an extraordinary week for America and our people. It was an unprecedented first trip abroad, just four months into this administration, and it shows how quickly and decisively the president is acting to strengthen alliances, to form new partnerships, and to rebuild America's standing in the world. We've never seen before at this point in the presidency such sweeping reassurance of American interest and the inauguration of a foreign policy strategy designed to bring back the world from growing dangers and perpetual disasters brought on by years of failed leadership. The president's address to the leaders of more than 50 Arab and Muslim nations was a historic turning point that people will be talking about for many years to come united the civilized world in the fight against terrorism and extremism. He let American allies know exactly what they can expect from us going forward. The president's historic speech was met with nearly universal praise. Hardworking Americans saw a leader represent them and their security on the international stage. This was an extraordinarily successful and historic nine-day trip the president took. He accomplished the return of a strong America to international affairs, rallied civilized nations of the world against terrorism, took real steps towards peace in the Middle East, and renewed our alliances on the basis of both shared interest and shared burdens. So that was Sean Spicer. Uh, Sounds like it went very well. Uh, Strengthening alliances and rebuilding the U.S. standing in the world. Let American allies know what they can expect of the president moving forward. Extraordinarily successful trip. Strong uh, return of America to the international stage. Well, that sounds encouraging until you look at what it is that our allies actually had to say after Donald Trump left. We first actually start with uh, while he was still there over the weekend. Um, As uh, AP notes, seven wealthy democracies ended their summit on Saturday in Italy without unanimous agreement on climate change as the Trump administration plans to take more time to decide whether the U.S. is going to remain in the Paris Accord on limiting limiting greenhouse gas emissions. The other six nations, however, in the Group of Seven, or the G7, agreed to stick with their commitment to implement the 2015 Paris deal to slow down global warming. The final G7 statement, which they issue at the end of each of these summits, um, this was issued after two days of talks in uh, Terramina in Italy, 
that statement said the U.S., quote, is in the process of reviewing its policies on climate change and on, par- on the Paris Agreement and thus is not in a position to join the consensus on these topics. Trump has uh, since tweeted that he would decide on the Paris Agreement next week. That would be this week. And so I suspect we'll be talking more about the Paris Agreement in the coming days. Italian Prime Minister Paolo Gentiloni, uh, who chaired the meeting, said that the other six, quote, won't change our position on climate change one millimeter. The U.S. hasn't decided yet. I hope they decide the right way. Gentiloni said climate was, quote, not a minor point and that he hoped the United States would decide, quote, soon and well because the Paris Accords need the contribution of the U.S. French President Emmanuel Macron said he told that told Trump that it is, quote, indispensable for the reputation of the United States and the interests of the Americans themselves that the United States remain committed to the Paris Climate Agreement. German Chancellor Angela Merkel was more downbeat. I guess the other two were not downbeat. Um, She was more downbeat, calling the G7 climate talks, quote, very difficult, if not to say very unsatisfactory. Trump held no news news conferences while he was on his nine days overseas trip. That allowed him to avoid questions about investigations into his campaign ties with Russian officials. His top economic and national security advisors refused to answer questions during a press briefing on Saturday. Uh, All in all, uh, many are concerned about whether the U.S. will stay in that uh, in that Paris Accord or not and what effect it might have on our relationship with allies. German uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel on Sunday urged the European nations to stick together in the face of the emerging policy divisions with the U.S. and with Britain's decision to leave the European Union. Speaking at a campaign event, Merkel suggested that the G7 summit in Italy that ended on Saturday had served as something of a wake-up call. G7 leaders were unable to reach unanimous agreement on climate change. And she said the times in which we can fully in which we can fully count on others are somewhat over, as I have experienced in the past few days. Merkel said this to a crowd of some twenty five hundred that had uh, gathered with her and the Bavarian governor. She said, and so all I can say is that we Europeans must really take our destiny into our own hands. Merkel emphasized the need for continued friendly relations with the U.S. and Britain and also stressed the importance of being good neighbors, quote, wherever that is possible, including with Russia, but also with others, she said. But we need to know we must fight for our own future as Europeans for our destiny. So uh, there was a lot of concern about the U.S. position on climate change and on the uh, on the Paris climate deal. And as I said, we're going to talk about that in the future. Uh, I suspect this week, because there's a lot that I want to get to on that. I, there's a lot I know you want to get to on that, Desi Doyen. Oh, Doyen. yeah. I mean, it's just the fate of the world that we're talking about There's here, only but, that. <laughs> only that. Uh, but on uh, on Tuesday... Uh, Trump hit back against Merkel and against her comments, uh, saying uh, in an early morning tweet that, to quote, we have a massive all caps. So, you know, it's massive. We have a massive trade deficit with Germany. Plus, they pay far less. Also, all caps. 
than they should on NATO and military. Very bad for U.S., he said. This will change. He was repeating a theme that he had uh, noted throughout his, his trip overseas and prior to that trip overseas, that NATO that the NATO nations are ripping off the U.S. somehow, that they're not paying enough money to NATO. And I, I haven't gotten to talk about this at all. So I want to hit a few points here because uh, AP does a great fact check on this, and we just haven't had time to talk about it, but I want to. In a, in a tweet before leaving for home for this overseas trip, uh, Trump said that thanks to him, Money is starting to pour into NATO. This was actually this. Yeah. Before he was heading home from his overseas trip. Money is now starting to pour into NATO thanks to his effort. He said during a speech uh, to troops in Sicily on Saturday, quote, I will tell you a big difference over the last year. Money is actually starting to pour into NATO from countries that would not have been doing what they're doing now had I not been elected. He said, I can tell you that money is starting to pour in. That also was echoed in his uh, in his tweet. Many NATO countries have agreed to step up payments considerably as they should. Money is beginning to pour in. The thing is, they are not stepping up their payments. That's not how NATO works. Here's the facts as AP describes it. First, no money is pouring in and countries do not pay the U.S., nor do they pay NATO directly, apart from administrative expenses, which are not the issue here. They note the issue is how much each NATO member country spends on its own defense. Although the president is right that many NATO countries have agreed to spend more on their military budgets, that's not the result of the NATO summit this past week at which Trump pressed them to do so. The countries had, in fact, agreed way back in 2014 to stop cutting their military spending and to start increasing it toward a 2% goal, 2% of their gross domestic product by 2024. So in seven years from now, these countries had agreed that they would work towards the goal of each spending 2% of their GDP by 2024. That goal was set, wait for it, during the Obama administration, and it is less than an ironclad commitment. It's not a, a treaty or something. It's just what they have in general said they would try to do. During his remarks to NATO uh, on Thursday of last week, Trump said, quote, 23 of the 28 member, na member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defense. This is not fair to the people and taxpayers of the United States. Somehow this is not fair to us. And many of these nations owe massive amounts of money from past years and not paying in those years. That makes no sense. Well, not if you know what's actually going, how NATO actually works. Uh, AP points out that the members of the alliance are not in arrears in their military spending. They are not in debt to the U.S. or failing to meet a current standard. And Washington is not trying to collect anything, despite the president's contention that they owe massive amounts of money. They merely committed back in 2014 to work towards the goal of 2% of GDP 
by the year 2024. So I, I've been meaning to get to that at all last week as he kept re- repeating that over and over again. I just wanted to get at least that much in. He also uh, offered a big whopper, a lie, a lie to the uh, Coast Guard uh, cadets during his um, commencement address about a week or so that I've also been trying to get to, but we'll have to hold that for another day as well because I got Mark Joseph Stern waiting on the line uh, to talk about at least three big court cases last week, two of them at the Supreme Court. All of them affect this nation and our elections and much more going forward. So stay tuned for that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, news continues to move at such a breakneck pace these days uh, that that there were some major court rulings last week, including what some have described as huge news from the U.S. Supreme Court last week regarding gerrymandering and campaign finance rules and some interesting, maybe even odd, certainly unexpected to many, alliances on the stolen Supreme Court. Uh, Some of those alliances have popped up since the seating of Justice Neil Gorsuch back in April into the seat that was stolen by the GOP that month after it was vacated in early 2016 by Antonin Scalia. And in case you don't remember, that was the seat that Senate Republicans, in an unprecedented move in all of U.S. history, refused to fill for the nearly full year that Barack Obama remained in office. I feel I need to remind people of that because it's still extraordinary. It will still continue to be extraordinary and historic uh, for generations to come. In any event, stick a pin in that for the moment. Moreover... Version 2.0 of uh, Donald Trump's Muslim travel ban executive order was also blocked yet again last week. This time, the nationwide injunction was upheld by a 10 to 3 ruling by the fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which means that the attempt to exclude uh, visas to to those from six majority Muslim nations and the indefinite ban on refugees from war torn Syria 
will all still remain on hold, at least until the case is heard either on its uh, full merits or until the injunction is lifted by the U.S. Supreme Court, where Attorney General Jeff Sessions has vowed to take that travel ban case next. Here to discuss all of those issues and perhaps even more is our friend Mark Joseph Stern. He covers the law, the court system, the Supreme Court, and LGBTQ issues at Slate.com. Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me back on. Always a pleasure. Thank you for being had. It is always a pleasure. Uh, did I uh, did I describe the path forward? Let's start with the travel ban. Uh, did I describe that path forward correctly on the travel ban uh, as far as, uh, as it is right now, Trump? Uh, his, his options for it, either a trial on the merit or an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court? Yes, that's right. Um, and I'm pretty sure that what will happen is Sessions will appeal uh, the Fourth and Ninth Circuit decisions together. We're still waiting on that Ninth Circuit decision. Mm. I think we'll know uh, pretty soon. I think it's safe to guess that it will come out the same way the Fourth Circuit decision came out. Uh, and once it does, I think Sessions will take them both to the Supreme Court and ask them to do what they did to Obama's clean power plan. Uh, you may remember uh, that the the Clean Power Plan went up to the Supreme Court just on briefings, just on emergency briefings, right. and the five conservative justices reached out and created this sort of super injunction against the plan uh, without anyone saying a word in court about it. Uh, it's certainly possible that that could happen this time, uh, sort of in reverse. It's possible that the five conservative justices could simply decide that it's all hogwash, that the ban uh, is perfectly constitutional, uh, and reverse all of the injunctions that have been placed against it uh, in one fell swoop. But in the, uh, in the case, if you compare it to the Clean Power Plan, the, the, the Supreme Court did not decide anything on its merits, right? They said the injunction can stay in place until the case is heard on its merits. So is that what you're suggesting could happen here with, with the Supreme Court, that they'll just say, well, the lower court, let them actually hear this and keep that injunction un, in place until it is heard? Well, so it's an imperfect analogy for that. I apologize. Um, but what actually happened in the Clean Power Plan case is that the lower courts did not put an injunction on the Clean Power Plan. Oh, okay. uh, what happened was it, it went up to the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit said, we are not going to enjoin this. We're going to okay. let it take effect. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the court, the Supreme Court, did what many people said at the time was extreme and unprecedented, which was slap an injunction on the case, an emergency mm -hmm. injunction, uh, when all of the lower courts had said it was not worthy of one. Uh, and so what we have here is sort of the mirror image version of right. that. All of the courts have said that this, uh, that this uh, executive order is worthy of an injunction. They've all said, we really need to block this. It has serious constitutional flaws. Uh, and so my fear is that the Supreme Court could do sort of the reverse of what I they see. did with the Clean Power Plan and say, we're going to ignore what all of you lower courts have said. And without hearing a peep of arguments on the merits, we're going to reverse all of you. That's my deep fear here. Well, that's the fear, but it's uh, it would be rather extraordinary given the number of uh, court rulings, lower court rulings now against this ban, one after another after another. Uh, you you note, for example, that the uh, the Trump administration has asserted in this case that anti-Muslim animus did not 
motivate either of the president's travel bans. He, he's tried twice on this. But the court did not accept that argument. And really, I, I, I think, have, have any of the courts who have heard this case accepted that argument to date, Mark? Uh, I, I believe there were two district courts, one in Boston very early on, mm-hmm. uh, and then more recently one in Northern Virginia that did accept uh, some version of that argument. Um, and so, you know, there have been a few dissenting voices, but you're absolutely right that by far the vast consensus here, the vast majority of judges have reached the consensus that this thing is unconstitutional. Uh, and so it would be pretty extraordinary for the court to just reach out and reverse all of them. Uh, but again, it's the Supreme Court. They get to do whatever they want. And with yeah. the stolen seat filled by Gorsuch, mm-hmm. they have five votes to do whatever they want. So we really aren't safe here until we know how Justice Kennedy pans out on this one. Yeah, you report that uh, Chief Justice Gregory of the uh, Fourth U.S. Circuit, uh, who, who found 10 to 3 that this injunction should or could stay in place, uh, that he laid out Trump's history of anti-Muslim statements on the campaign trail. These statements he wrote, taken together, provide direct specific evidence of what motivated both of those executive orders, uh, which was, he says, President Trump's desire to exclude Muslims from the U.S. So, Mark, uh, Trump is just back from this nine-day trip overseas, uh, several days spent in the Middle East. Do you suspect his speech in Saudi Arabia, in which he praised Islam as one of the world's great faiths, that uh, and that uh, that comment ticked off a lot of Trump supporters. But do you suspect that that will either make any difference in these uh, in these court cases going forward, uh, or that it will be used by the Trump administration to argue, hey, see, we've we've got nothing against Muslims. Look, the president had this to say in in Saudi Arabia. Uh, certainly the Trump administration will use the speech to that end. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I strongly suspect that whoever wrote the speech designed it with that goal in mind. Mm. Uh, because the relevant precedent here says that the taint of uh, religious, in, invalid religious purpose does not last forever that it can dissipate, and that an action by the government that might have once been illegal uh, can, can stop being illegal once that taint is gone. Uh, and so the question is, when does the taint dissipate here? What the Trump administration is arguing is, first, there was no taint, uh, because Trump is an angel who loves Muslims. Uh, but second, even if there were once a taint, it's gone now because Trump has said nice things about Muslims. Um, I doubt that that argument will persuade anyone who was on the fence or against Trump already, but it's certainly fodder for supporters of the travel ban, uh, and it can certainly be used pointedly, I think, by judges who think the travel ban is constitutional uh, to say, look, where does this end? Is Trump never permitted to uh, implement Mm -hmm. uh, any kind of order or law that has a disproportionate impact on Muslims? Uh, When is he going to be permitted to issue these kinds of orders again? Uh, I think one answer to that question is he's allowed to issue any order that doesn't obviously target Muslims. Um, But, you know, it's a powerful rhetorical point, and I think we will be seeing it in a lot of filings over the next couple of weeks and months. And because the government had essentially argued that um, don't pay attention to anything Trump said. That was a long time ago. It was on the campaign trail. He the, the campaign trail is different than once you're president. But then even as president, after the 
after the first uh, executive order was blocked by the courts, Trump came out and said, well, the second one is a watered-down version. It has the same basic policy outcomes. He, he seems to be his own worst enemy here. But so this was not, in any event, this is not ancient history. You can't even say, oh, this was only back on the campaign trail because since he's become president, he has used similar rhetoric. But I guess, Mark, uh, the, the government is trying to put forward the argument that, hey, eventually we have to forget about what those things uh, what, what, what those things are that he said and just look at the order itself, the plain text uh, order, the four corners of the document. What does that say? Is that constitutional or not? Basically, yes, that's right. Uh, although there is a middle ground that was forged by uh, one of the judges uh, in the Fourth Circuit decision, uh, who wrote, "Look, we shouldn't be looking at what Trump said before he became president, but once Trump entered the role, the constitutionally mm-hmm. uh, prescribed role of executive, uh, it became something different, and his remarks were imbued with the power of the." State. Uh, and so we can look at the statements that Trump made after he entered the Oval Office, which I think is a pretty powerful argument. Uh, and it defangs one of the arguments against uh, looking at Trump's statements in any capacity, uh, which Judge Alex Kaczynski had made on the, on the Ninth Circuit, uh, in which Judge Kaczynski said, look, this will chill campaign speech if we are allowed to look at the speech of candidates uh, in evaluating the legitimacy of their laws, then people won't say what they want to say on the campaign trail. And and that's a bad thing, in my opinion. Uh, This judge on the Fourth Circuit said, hey, listen, we can resolve this case without looking at the campaign for one second. We can resolve this case by looking at what President Trump said as president. Mm -hmm. And regardless of his past comments, these more recent comments prove that the taint is there. Uh, Whether that taint has since dissipated, that's another question. Uh, But there is certainly a middle ground here that I think can make sort of moderates on both sides uh, find a good outcome. And whether those comments in Saudi Arabia will then be used by the uh, the justices on the Supreme Court to say, well, yeah, he might have said, uh, you know, things against Muslims in the past. But look, now he says he loves them. So we're going to let this stand. And they have the five to four stolen majority to do it. Mark, uh, before we move into the uh, election realm here and two cases of a pretty big note last week. Um, I didn't get to read your story on this, but I saw your headline, Virginia Governor Pardons Undocumented Immigrants Traffic Offense to Stop Deportation. Really? What, what happened there? Uh, well, what happened there was that President Trump is currently in office uh, and <laughs> has fully overhauled, really, our immigration system. I think not many people are paying attention to the fact that we're in the midst of a sort of forced demographic change right now, uh, which involves the mass deportation of perfectly law-abiding individuals in this country who unfortunately happen to be Hispanics who uh, came to this country unlawfully. Um, A lot of these people, more than 11,000 just since Trump took office, which is an exponential increase since the Obama years. Mm. Uh, A lot of these people are completely innocent. They've done nothing wrong. They've done something very minor, like go like speed or drive without a license once to pick up their child. Uh, and as soon as that happens, 
that the Trump administration picks them up and deports them, usually back to Mexico. Uh, so what happened here is that this woman, she is a pillar of her community. She's married. She has two American children. They're full citizens. Mm. Um, and she has one spot on her record, which was that she was caught driving without a license which is fairly common among undocumented people who live in a state where they can't obtain a license mm -hmm. because of their status. Mm. Um, and so this woman had been living in Virginia for years. The Obama administration told her, no worries, we won't deport you. This is no big deal. Stay with your family. It's fine. Trump took office. This woman went to check in, as she always does, with uh, immigration and customs enforcement agents, uh, and they promptly arrested her and deported her. Um, or at least are attempting to deport her. We aren't even sure what's going on right now. Uh, and in response to that, Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia, a Democrat, did the only thing he really can do and pardon her one misdemeanor uh, so that ICE cannot even pretend like there is a real reason that they're deporting this poor woman other than the fact that she's Mexican and this administration hates Mexicans. And uh, have, have we seen a response since uh, McAuliffe issued this pardon as far as what the federal government is now going to do with this woman? Uh, no, the federal government has not responded in any capacity, but unfortunately, uh, the government does retain the right to deport her. You know, Congress gave the president really broad discretion to enforce immigration law. Uh, sometimes that turns out to be a good thing. Uh, we saw under the Obama administration, you know, DACA itself was an exercise in discretion. Uh, but sometimes in, in it can that be case, a very, very bad thing, and, and that's what we're seeing here. And, and in the case of DACA, allowing and to defer uh, uh, deportation for the uh, kids, essentially the, the kids who were brought here by their parents uh, at a young age. Their parents came here unlawfully, uh, and they came with them, and this basically says, uh, DACA says, you know, they can stay here. But even in the cases of DACA, Mark, we have seen, and, and I think uh, the case you, you cite here in Virginia underscores this, uh, you know, we were given warnings. We had folks on this show from the various, uh, you know, national immigration groups and so forth who said, People are going to be even these uh, DACA kids who have been you know, given clearance by the federal government to remain here under Obama, that if they get a I think a jaywalking ticket was the way uh, one of our guests had described it at the time, uh, then they could be deported. That seemed extreme at the time. But if we're talking about this woman who had essentially a traffic ticket, uh that suggests exactly you know, what the critics had feared, that that is exactly what the Trump administration is doing while we're all distracted with everything else that's going on with this uh, administration. Yes, absolutely. And, and I just want to make a quick correction, by the way. The, the woman in Virginia, she entered the country through Mexico, but she's actually from El Salvador. Mm -hmm. um, and she escaped El Salvador, basically fled due to the war there. Um, so it's not like she just came to the U.S. because she preferred the shopping here. This was really a refugee case yep. that just wasn't docketed as such. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. The, the problem with these DACA cases is that the administration has said it will preserve DACA, uh, but there's no real way, except on a case-by-case -case basis, to force it to comply with that promise. Uh, and so people, whether or not they have DACA, they're being swept up in these mass raids. Um, they're being taken into custody at courthouses, at schools, at doctor's offices, clinics, legal aid clinics. 
undocumented immigrants are being arrested after getting hit by cars. Recently, an undocumented man was hit by a car while riding his bicycle. Mm -hmm. The police came and arrested him for being undocumented. This is happening all across the country. It is horrifying, and no one is paying attention to it because of Trump's crazy tweets and everything else that's going on. But I really think we should be viewing this not just as an immigration crackdown, but as a vindication of Steve Bannon et al.'s promise to implement white nationalism. This is an attempt to reverse demographic change by kicking Hispanics out of the country. And so far, in just four months, it has proved wildly successful. That's disturbing. Uh, But yeah, I agree. And I think most disturbing is the fact that it is getting so little attention in the media. Speaking with Mark Joseph Stern, I'll tell you what, let me take a quick break and we will come back with two very big Uh, And I would argue encouraging uh, rulings from the Supreme Court concerning elections that also happened last week and some uh, strange political bedfellows in the bargain. I'll explain with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with Mark Joseph Stern, uh, who covers the uh, law for Slate.com. We were talking about the uh, president's travel ban being shut down once again by the courts last week. The uh, Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, Uh, even as these uh, deportations continue sort of under the radar, under the media's radar, while everything else is going on with Team Trump. Uh, And so speaking of which, if anything is going to be done about that, we all have to have elections and we have to be able to vote and stuff along those lines. Two big decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court last week. The simpler of the two, I think, was a a seven to two decision on a campaign finance case upholding the restrictions on how much individual donors can give to candidates and to parties, according to the still barely uh, standing McCain-Feingold campaign finance law. Uh, This after the court gutted restrictions on how much could be given to third party groups back in its uh, infamous 2010 Citizens United ruling. Uh, Mark, this was uh, Neil Gorsuch's first opinion for the court, writing the dissent here, I I believe, or leading the dissent. Uh, Only he and Thomas dissented from this case. What was their reasoning? Even Roberts, Kennedy, and Alito wouldn't go along with Gorsuch and uh, Clarence Thomas on this one. Uh, So, Well, I guess two questions. What do we learn, A, from Gorsuch's dissent in and of itself, and what might it tell us about Neil Gorsuch going forward on this stolen Supreme Court? So, you know, 
fortunately or unfortunately, we don't have a written dissent in this case because it was something the Supreme Court doesn't do as often as I think they should, which is to summarily affirm a lower court decision uh, that they consider to be correct and that they think was pretty easy to resolve. Mm -hmm. This was one such case. The court didn't even issue an opinion or hold arguments. The court simply voted and said, yes, you guys got this right. It's perfectly fine to cap the amount of soft money that flows to political parties. Um, But Justices Thomas and Gorsuch noted uh, their dissent here. They refused to go along with the majority, and instead they issued this very strange statement saying, well, we would set this case for arguments, hear arguments, and Mm -hmm. essentially, they didn't say this outright, but essentially they said, we think this ban is unconstitutional. It's pretty clear that they want to strike down this ban. Uh, Mm -hmm. And what that tells us, even with the relatively few number of words we got from the court, Mm -hmm. what that tells us is that Gorsuch is probably the most, or at least the second most, extreme justice on campaign finance reform, uh, aside from Clarence Thomas, because this case was not difficult. This was not hard or controversial. This was simply reaffirming really, really old precedents. The court had no trouble with it, but apparently Neil Gorsuch thinks that the First Amendment's free speech clause somehow guarantees individuals the ability to pour unlimited sums of money into political parties' coffers. That is very disturbing. Uh, And it suggests not only that he would happily go along with Citizens United and McCutcheon and the other decisions that have deregulated campaign finance, Mm -hmm. uh, but that he would go further, further than even Roberts and Kennedy are willing to go, and basically abolish the entire regulatory scheme that still governs the campaign finance in this country. Uh, So, you know, it was a short little dissent. It didn't tell us much. Mm -hmm. But what we know from it is... Our campaign finance laws are not safe, and Neil Gorsuch cannot wait to get his hands on them. Wow, that's uh, you know that's kind of amazing. As as he was you know trying to appear like he was uh, you know reasonable during his confirmation hearings, he was he was not crazy. He was not far to the right. He was just going to follow the text as written. Well, uh, <laughs> the fact that he joined with uh, Clarence Thomas here, and that Alito wouldn't even go along with these two, uh, I think tells us quite a bit. And it, you're right, it is quite troubling. In general, though, can we uh, at least look at that since we're so desperate for good news, Mark? Can we at least look at that as, uh, hey, good news, uh, the good news ruling, at least for now, uh, restrictions on how much can be spent on any one candidate uh, or, or political party by one person, uh, at least that restriction has for the moment held. I think so. Uh, and the fact that the court didn't just deny cert, that the court actually affirmed the decision below, mm-hmm. that's a little bit of good news. Whether or not Roberts and his pals were just trying to sort of duck the controversy, mm. uh, whether or not they'll just revisit this in a couple years, we don't know. But for now, we should absolutely take this as a temporary victory for a little bit of sanity in our campaign <laughs> finance laws. We'll, we'll take whatever we can get these days, Mark. Um, and and speaking of, and I actually I think this is um, not just taking sort of low hanging fruit, but this is potentially really huge news. Uh, we had this very surprising opinion, I think, uh, largely because of who decided it on uh, on racial 
and partisan gerrymandering, essentially, after North Carolina was found by a lower court to have gerrymandered its uh, congressional districts, two of its congressional districts, uh, and in a separate ruling, I think, by by, uh, by a lower court as well, its uh, state assembly seats had been found to have been uh, gerrymandered as well. Um, now, this gets a little bit complicated, so I'm going to need your help here, uh, Mark, but I, I think this case, its ruling from the Supreme Court is being regarded as a huge ruling by folks like Rick Hassan at Election Law Blog. You called it at Slate a triumph for democracy. So there are sort of two elements here that seem quite big. One, this was a five to three ruling. Uh, so just eight justices because it was heard before Gorsuch was seated. But uh, the reason that uh, Justice Elena Kagan uh, was able to write for the majority opinion in this case was because Clarence Thomas joined the liberals here. Your headline, Clarence Thomas joins liberals, shocks world. Uh, before I ask you about why he joined the liberals, I think it might make more sense to explain this case itself. And maybe that'll give us a, a pathway to understanding why uh, why Thomas joined the, uh, the, the the Democratic appointees in this case. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not as complicated as it might seem at first glance, mm -hmm. uh, because it really is all about racial gerrymandering, the practice of drawing district lines uh, with a race in mind. Um, and what the case was about was this two districts, but specifically one really egregious district in North Carolina um, that was packed with black people. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why the General Assembly packed this district with black people, uh, it claimed, was so that it could basically keep all of the Democratic voters in a few very safe districts then distribute the rest of the Democratic voters through Republican districts uh, so that the state, rather than having a roughly even split of districts between Democrats and Republicans, which would reflect its makeup, uh, would have mostly Republican districts along with just a few Democratic ones that are overwhelmingly Democratic. Basically, kick the Democrats out of most of the districts, put them in their own little ghetto, and use the rest of the districts to elect Republicans. Um, the problem for the court was that the way that the North Carolina General Assembly did this was to figure out who was a Democrat by figuring out who was black and taking all of these black people and saying, well, you guys are black, so you're probably Democrats, uh, and squeezing them into a safe district. Uh, and the problem for the court with that was that even though North Carolina purported to be using race as a mere proxy for partisanship, it was still using race. And the five justices in the majority said, look, we get that you think this was just about partisanship. We get that you weren't trying to discriminate against black people. You were trying to discriminate against Democrats. But you still used race. You used black people to accomplish your goals. And that in itself is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And, and here's, I think, where it gets complicated, because throughout your description, Mark, you're describing uh, the claim by the uh, by the Republicans, I guess, in North Carolina that, uh, no, no, we weren't doing this on a racial basis. Well, maybe it was a racial basis, but it was because 
we were just trying to separate uh, Democrats from Republicans. And the argument here, and this is uh, coming up more and more in all of these election cases, is that the, the premise that you can't discriminate based on race, at least race alone in and of itself, but you can discriminate based on party affiliation. So because we've heard this case now come up, this uh, this defense come up in cases in Texas, in North Carolina and elsewhere to say, no, we're not trying to keep black people from voting. We're trying to keep Democrats from voting, as if to say discriminating on a partisan basis is perfectly fine. Is it? Right. Is, is that is that legal to say, uh, yeah, well, we did discriminate, but it was only against Democrats. So that's totally legal. There's nothing constitutionally that bars us from, from doing that. So here's, here's where it does get a little complicated, despite my earlier assurance that it wouldn't. Um, <laughs> Told you. The court has never ruled against a partisan gerrymander. However, the four liberals and Justice Kennedy have all expressed in some capacity a belief that partisan gerrymandering could violate the Constitution. And the reason why is actually very simple. Uh, When a legislature draws lines, uh, draws district lines, Mm -hmm. in an effort to dilute the votes of members of a certain party, uh, the legislature is actually engaging in viewpoint-based discrimination. The legislature is saying to certain voters, because you affiliate with a political party, a certain political party, because you express views in support of that political party, we are going to punish you, and we are going to prevent you from electing the representative of your choice from your party. That is a clear violation of freedom of expression, freedom of association, uh, and, uh, you know, freedom of speech. Uh, and the court, in pretty much any other context, would almost certainly uh, strike it down. However, the court has not yet found a clear standard to use to figure out the point at which partisan gerrymandering becomes unconstitutional. The point at which the lines are so partisan that Democratic voters have no real chance of electing a candidate from their preferred party. There is a case that will be heard next term on that point. But until that decision comes down, presuming it comes down the right way, and that's a big if, Mm -hmm. uh, states can continue to go to court and say, we weren't really trying to discriminate against black people. We were just trying to discriminate against Democrats. Which is in and of itself kind of amazing to me. Kind of amazing that there is no uh, the, the constitutional bar, uh, ban on, on that kind of thing. Uh, that they are proudly, the Republicans are proudly citing that to say, no, we're not, uh, you know, keeping minorities. We're keeping Democrats from having that. That's kind of amazing to me. All right, before we talk about why Clarence Thomas joined the liberals on this, um, I'm I'm wondering what effect you think that this uh, Kagan's opinion here in this case will have moving forward because there's a whole bunch of other cases, a bunch of other findings of late, I think in, in, in Texas, Alabama, Wisconsin, Virginia, North Carolina, uh, to name a few, if I'm remembering, that uh, all have found 
Jerry, unlawful gerrymandering of one type or another, be it racial or partisan. I think the partisan finding was up in Wisconsin. So uh, you call this huge, actually Rick Hassan calls it huge. You call it a, a victory for democracy. So how will this affect these other cases now moving forward, as, you, as far as you can tell? Well, it'll have a huge impact uh, because even though the court has not yet said partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional and we will strike it down, what the court said in this decision, and uh, Justice Kagan put it in a footnote. I wonder if Clarence Thomas read this footnote because Mm. it's really the most important part of the decision. She basically says, listen, you are no longer allowed to use the excuse that you weren't discriminating against blacks, you were discriminating against Democrats. It doesn't matter who you were trying to discriminate against. What matters is that you used race as a proxy. That is the constitutional tripwire. And however you try to justify it, even if it's true, even if your real goal was to burden Democrats and not blacks, the reality is that you used race as the predominant factor in redistricting. Mm. And whatever the reason for doing it, that is always or almost always unconstitutional. And that is the key question in pretty much all of the cases you just cited, uh, all of them except for Wisconsin, I believe, mm. are an issue of racial gerrymandering where the state said, we weren't trying to discriminate against blacks, we were trying to discriminate against Democrats. Uh, and I think in all of those cases, the state loses um, because the fact that they had acknowledged that they drew these lines uh, with race in mind pretty much sinks them in court after this decision. Uh, and which brings us finally here on the last note to uh, Clarence Thomas again. And the fact that he joined the majority here, so it was 5-3 to three ruling. This otherwise would have been a 4-4 four to four ruling, and the lower court uh, ruling would have stood. The lower court had found that, uh, th- that these uh, two districts had to be tossed out because they were uh, unlawful gerrymanders. But with, uh, with Thomas coming on board, that means that Elena Kagan's decision sets a precedent for all of these other cases now. So why the hell did Clarence Thomas join up with the Democrats here? So this is really interesting, and I I have to give it to Thomas because he's really the most consistent voice on this particular issue. Um, And to explain why, we have to go back in time a little bit to the 80s and the 90s um, when the question of racial gerrymandering was very different. Here's what was happening back then. Uh, a lot of states had interpreted the Voting Rights Act uh, with, with some uh, encouragement from the federal government, from the attorney general, uh, to actually require the creation of majority black districts so that black people in a state could choose their own presumably black representative. Mm-hmm. The idea was that the Voting Rights Act was a kind of affirmative action for black voters. And the theory was that black voters, more so than wanting a Democratic representative, wanted a black representative. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for for quite a while, actually, states sort of uh, through this weird alliance uh, between Republicans and black representatives uh, created these majority black districts that really segregated a lot of Democratic voters Mm -hmm. into just a few seats 
Uh, but those voters were mostly black, and they were able to choose a black representative. At the time, liberals liked that. Right. Uh, and liberals viewed it, again, as a kind of affirmative action to help black voters pick black representatives. Uh, and when there were these challenges to these districts uh, in the 90s, the challenges were brought not by liberals, but by conservatives mm-hmm. who said, you need to stop using affirmative action in redistricting. At that time, Clarence Thomas and the conservatives agreed and said, hey, we think that no matter why or how you're using race, and back then it was genuinely uh, affirmative action, uh, the, the conservatives said, you just can't do it. You can't use race no matter what, whether it's good or bad, you have to stop. And Thomas never let go of that belief. Because in the meantime, and and I'm I'm, uh, short on time, Mark, but in the meantime, the liberals and the conservatives have sort of flipped sides on this. Uh, Yes, that's exactly right. What happened was the, the legislatures began using race not as a kind of affirmative action program, but to prevent black voters Uh, and Democrats from electing more Democrats to the legislature. The liberals started to realize how insidious this practice was. The conservatives started to realize how much it benefited them. So everyone else has really flipped sides, except for Thomas, who has really stuck to his guns. And you can go way back, and from the very start, he has always said, you can't use race you can't do it, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter why, you can never draw district lines using race. And that's what delivered us the big victory last week. Uh, indeed it did, and that question remains, I guess we'll find out in future cases, of whether or not Thomas carefully read the footnote in Kagan's, uh, in Kagan's uh, majority opinion. But that will remain for another time uh, and another thrilling episode. Mark Joseph Stern, always great to talk to you. You are so clear and uh, clarifying in your explanations. It is greatly appreciated. Find uh, Mark and his work at Slate.com and on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you as always, my friend. Thank you, Brad. Always a pleasure. We'll be bothering you again soon. All right, we got to get out. Running late once again. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. My thanks, as ever, to those of you who, while there, stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, find us, follow us, and share us worldwide at The Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.